Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Suzanne Blaymeyers left school with good grades in psychology, sociology, and English literature. Her mother took great pride in how bright and articulate she was. When she wasn't studying or horseback riding, Suzanne worked in a care home. Her duties there and the people she helped inspired her to train as a nurse, and she enrolled in college. But a drug habit and the constant need for money to feed it pushed Suzanne in a different direction and to adopt an alter ego that she hid from her family. She became Amber, a sex worker. I hated her being a prostitute, said her boyfriend, but I turned a blind eye because we needed the cash. In 2010, age 36, and years on from her own college studies, Suzanne was approached by a graduate student. He was pursuing a doctorate in criminology at the nearby university, but he seemed to have a special interest in the women who worked in the red light area near his home. He'd photograph them for an exhibition, he'd explain. Suzanne accompanied him back to his apartment. As they approached his door, they chatted amicably. Perhaps he was telling her about his studies, his PhD thesis, and his focus on homicide in the Victorian era. As Suzanne entered the flat, she would have seen a large bookcase shelf after shelf of true crime, and book after book about a man her host seemed to genuinely admire, Jack the Ripper. And then, behind Suzanne, the apartment door shut. I'm Hallie Rubenhold. You're listening to Bad Women, The Ripper Retold a series about the real lives of the women killed by Jack the Ripper and how we got their stories so wrong. 
inside money plenty and friends to buy the score then fortune smiled upon me Myers entered the apartment of Stephen Griffiths in the early hours of a Saturday. On the following Monday morning, the building's custodian sat down to review the weekend surveillance camera footage. It was a routine chore, checking for minor antisocial behaviour. But what he saw unfold on the screen would sicken and appall him. A terrified Suzanne fled from the apartment just minutes after her arrival. Griffiths pursued her, And then, well aware that he was being filmed, he brutally murdered Suzanne and dragged her body back to his flat to carry out yet more unspeakable acts. The custodian hurriedly called the police. Griffiths was waiting when they arrived and was only too happy to brag about other, similar murders he'd committed. Reading true crime books certainly doesn't make you into a murderer and nor does embarking on a PhD in criminology. But Griffiths and violent men like him often don't just study the likes of Jack the Ripper. They celebrate them, venerate them, and just occasionally emulate them. When I began researching the victims of the Whitechapel murders, I had perhaps naively underestimated the depths of some people's interest in serial killers, and the breadth of books, online forums, and podcasts eager to service this demand for gore. Some of what I've seen and heard since is deeply troubling. Nor was I quite prepared for where I would encounter some of the most disturbing content. Content that elevates the killer and denigrates his victims. If you were shocked that a major British university would sanction a man like Griffiths to indulge his warped interest in murderers, you may be as astonished as I was to learn that many children are being taught about Jack the Ripper in school. This particular teacher very much had a very entertaining way of, you know, showing history. A little bit questionable afterwards, but at the time, the issue never crossed my mind. This is Sydney. She learned about Jack the Ripper in history class at an international school in France when she was 13 years old. It was very much reiterated, you know, some of these women were getting drunk every night. And, you know, they were saying that if they were sober, they would have been able to escape the killer. At the time, Sydney didn't question her teacher's framing of the story, with its clear victim-blaming. Now, understanding the severity of alcohol addiction and the negative effects of it, it's not really fair to teach children that it could have prevented these women from being murdered. Like, if she didn't spend her last money on drinks, she would have made it through the night. Like... It excused and was an explanation for the murders. Back then, Sydney was really into police procedurals, like CSI and NCIS. So a whodunit approach that didn't reflect on the victims just felt normal. We actually created an FBI 
type crime scene board, which had pictures of rumored killers, strings attached to maps, just how you would see it on TV. She was also unfazed by the graphic descriptions of the injuries, too. But other students were rather more upset. Like, I remember even that some people were squeamish and they had to leave the class. I've heard similar things from former students around the globe. One art teacher at an elementary school would end his classes with stories of the murders, culminating in the savage mutilation of Mary Jane Kelly. A drama teacher staged a play depicting the killings year after year after year. But it's in history classes that most people have learned about Jack the Ripper. And what they were taught is completely divorced from reality and objectionable to the memories of the victims. Some history teachers plonked their classes down in front of the Hollywood film From Hell to endure Johnny Depp's Cockney accent I think he's taking more organs this time. and swallow that totally debunked royal conspiracy theory. Other educators create worksheets that dismiss the women as prostitutes and helpless alcoholics and invite pupils to catalogue the injuries of each woman to earn a good grade. When I look and reflect on it now, I'm incredibly embarrassed about what I used to do. Simon Beale teaches history at a school in London. So, what we're looking at here is how I originally taught. He's showing me the resources he once used in his classes on Jack the Ripper. I'd get that cheap kind of paper tablecloth you get for parties, and I'd stretch it out, write all over it, put an outline of a body, a map of Whitechapel... And it would be a kind of two to three lesson investigation where the first lesson would be about the killings, then it would be about the suspects, and they'd keep writing all over it. Pupils would then embellish these pieces of paper with bloody knives and very detailed imagery of who the killer was and things like that. And I was incredibly proud of it. What historically is there to be derived from that exercise? If you challenged me on it at the time, I would have said, I'm giving them a range of information, I'm getting them to draw conclusions, come up with theories weigh up evidence and then present it, which all sound incredibly useful in a history classroom. I could do that doing lots of things. It doesn't have to be about a brutal series of killings to do all the things I've just mentioned. Simon grew worried that the historical tale he was sharing was thin and threadbare. There are few rigorously researched history books, remember, and the details that were available centred on gore, which wasn't exactly age-appropriate. He wouldn't have taught any other historical period in this way. What I find most shocking is actually the kind of maturity of the content we're using with pupils of kind of 13 to 14 years old who just aren't ready to see it. With those younger pupils, we're using crime scene photography and the autopsy reports, but we're not preparing them for it or actually doing any duty of care afterwards about kind of their reaction to seeing these things. It's just often we're done and we're doing something else afterwards. God, I don't know if anybody's ever ready to see it, to be honest. No, absolutely. And we're not giving them the choice. Quite often, they're arriving at the lesson not knowing what they're going to be studying. And then suddenly, that's what they're looking at. You wouldn't teach about the Zodiac killings or the Son of Sam killings in your history lessons. You understand that that's for an adult audience. But there's something about Jack the Ripper that has almost taken away any age rating. And anything goes when discussing those killings because it's in some way mythologized in the national, maybe even international consciousness. Simon was essentially teaching the tired old Ripper myth that you've heard demolished bit by bit during this series. He began to fear his classes were just perpetuating falsities about Polly, Annie, Elizabeth, Kate and Mary Jane, and teaching his pupils something dark and pernicious about how violence against women should be understood. Pupils only know about Jack the Ripper probably 
because their teacher taught it to them. If they taught it to them as about them being these victims, they'll probably then go on to just see them in that lens. I can't say that there isn't someone that was in my lesson that saw it and thought, okay, this has always been going on. Not that these are rare, extreme cases that really need sensitivity when they're covered. Boys may well come away with this idea that violent killings are something that men do and it gets lots of attention, notoriety potentially. And then when you think about the girls in your classroom, it really can accidentally lead them to the idea that they're victims. And while you might want to show how the role of women in the Victorian period was difficult, if you do the Jack the Ripper killings in a certain way, if you just focus on the killings, all you're doing is women get brutally killed and it happens a lot. Men are on top. They get to do what they want. Sometimes they get away with it. And what happens to these women and their lives beforehand are incidental. So Simon has ditched his old lesson plan. And now he doesn't teach about Jack the Ripper anymore. Instead, he uses the lives of the five women to examine what it was like to be a poor Victorian. It's much more about their lives and much more about the various things pulling women down from being able to live in any way an equitable life compared to men. I'm trying to almost avoid even talking about their deaths. In the, in the resources I use now, it's just got the, the date of their deaths. And if people notice it, we might have a conversation. But what I found is that they're so interested by their lives and the different interactions and the different opportunities each of them had that it may never come up. Simon's experience shows that we underestimate our students if we assume that only blood, gore and police procedurals will get them excited about history. But individual teachers like Simon are just interpreting guidelines they get from higher up. Very broadly speaking, how does Jack the Ripper fit into the Edexcel curriculum? He is part of the investigative policing content in the Whitechapel historic environment. Edexcel is the name of the body that sets and marks exams for many young people in the UK. Mark Anstey manages the history qualifications for 15 to 18-year-olds. I wanted to know how much thought had gone into the Ripper myth and the curriculum. And the answer was, not much. The body of material primary sources is negligible. That actually came as a surprise to me when I started doing my research in this. And I'll admit that's something I I wasn't aware of either. In terms of including it in future specifications, that's something that we we could continue to look at. I think there is a value to to looking at late Victorian Whitechapel. I think it's a valid question as well to say, do we want to continue to include the investigation of the Ripper murders within, within that content? Mark also agreed that when teachers still show their students graphic content or films like From Hell, they need to be invited to think again. I hope things have moved on a a bit from that. Where they haven't, I think we, we need to do more to encourage change. So it's looking promising. And while we were making this podcast, the publisher of Edexcel's textbooks announced it would correct references to all the women being prostitutes. Thank you for bringing this to our attention. The firm tweeted, We plan to revise and update this paragraph to reflect Hallie Rubenhold's recent groundbreaking work. Change is underway in the world of education. But many of us still have our misconceptions about the Whitechapel murders reinforced time and again in books, on TV and in newspaper articles. One of the biggest voices on the topic is Patricia Cornwell. Can she help change the way the old story is told and shift the spotlight away from the killer? Well, I'm finally able to ask her in person. 
The Ripper Retold will return shortly. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today. Anybody that thinks it's fun getting involved in this case, it's not fun. I call it Jack the Rip Off because mm-hmm. it certainly lost me far more money than I ever earned just spending it on, on all the, the research and stuff that I had to do. But you should never stop trying to find the truth about anything. Patricia Cornwell's telling me about the millions of dollars she spent employing experts and purchasing artwork and letters by Walter Sickert in her quest to unmask the painter as Jack the Ripper. Can I persuade her to concentrate her energies on the stories of the victims? I think you have to do both because, this is my opinion, part of the way that we honor the victims is you have to unflinchingly stare in the face what was done to them and why and how. You have to, or you will never reconstruct their final moments when they were the most isolated and desperate they've ever been. And we need to bring them back to life, but you still have to deal with who's doing this. You still have to look at the one who's preying on these people and why. And I honestly think whether we like it or not, the world's curious about that. They, it's like we can't help but be curious about the monsters. And to face the reality, 
that when you've marginalized and victimized any group of people or any individual, you make them vulnerable for harm because predators watch to see who is vulnerable. Patricia agrees, however, that we'll never truly know this predator's identity. That was the stupidest thing I ever did was to call that first book about Jack the Ripper case closed. I was way too sure of myself back then in my younger days, salad days, as we say in the South, because it will never be closed. But no matter what. What do you think that justice would really look like in the Jack the Ripper case? What's going to happen? Today, the closest you could ever get is, is simply excavating for as much truth as you can find. That includes with the victims, like, you know, if there had been someone who thought they were a descendant of Mary Kelly and thought there was an exhumation possible and thought you could really find those remains and do DNA on it and maybe do mitochondrial and perhaps figure out who she really was. That is the beginning of justice because you're restoring someone's identity to them. I've always thought the saddest thing in the morgue are the the people we don't know who they are. I can't get Patricia to change her mind about continuing to hunt down the murderer. But what happened to the five genuinely incenses her. She's personally and deeply outraged by their murders. I know you're not interested in who Jack the Ripper was. And, and, you know, this is why we make a really good harmony here, because I go after the bad guy and you're going after the victims. And I'm interested in them, too. But I really want to nail this mother, you know, water, because he shouldn't get away with it. First of all, let me just say this. People have known the names of these people for a long time. But what they've never had is a real historian like you to humanize them and to look beyond just the usual lore. These were desperate, homeless people who are just trying to survive under dreadful conditions. Patricia has always spoken about the women respectfully and with great empathy, but she's previously stuck to the idea that all five were selling sex on the nights they died. It seems she's now more willing to accept my theory that homelessness played a bigger role. And she also agrees that society failed these women and continues to fail their modern counterparts. I believe that nothing ever ends. These cases still go on today. And if we don't try to fix it as best we can, we are not re-engineering life the way we should. Maybe we can prevent this from happening again. We gain more understanding not only into what can cause victimization, but also to get more insights into what goes haywire with people who might perpetrate things like this. We don't want those monsters among us. We'd like to fix that somehow. It's also about society taking responsibility. It's about like when we have people on the margins, when we have people who are not looked after, when we don't care about mental health, when we don't care about people who are sick because we don't want to care, that's on us. That's right. I totally agree with you that we have to know what happened to people in order to understand how bad it was. But I think we can also tip over too far into a danger that we glamorize violence with with focusing on Jack the Ripper. How can we get this balance right? You are absolutely right. I mean, I'm sorry, but I find the Ripper walks offensive. I'm sorry. I really do. I find the commercial industry of this offensive. It's turned him into a comic book hero. And that takes away from the reality, from the pain and the suffering and the absolute terror. Uh, that these victims felt. I honored them by trying to show the reality of what was done to them. You know, it's funny, if you go to University College at Oxford, there's, as as I recall from long ago, there's this beautiful sculpture of Shelley, the drowned poet, you know, all white and marbly and elegant with his beautiful body 
dead on the shore. And let me tell you what, that ain't what he looked like when he washed up. That is not the reality of violence and death. And just like you don't like these prostitute, quote, sex workers depicted as these women in their fancy bustles and low cut, whatever. I don't like victims looking like it was nothing. I just went to sleep. She's pretty disgusted by the market for Ripper-related items, too. The mugs and the teddy bears and the shot glasses. What would she say to the people who buy this stuff? It's dangerous and it's offensive. Let me take that photograph of Mary Kelly on her bed, ladies and gentlemen, and put it on an effing T-shirt and say, um, you know, trick or treat. Because that's what you're doing. You're saying trick or treat. Well, it wasn't trick or treat for these people. And it wasn't trick or treat for the cops that were horrified and shocked and traumatized. It wasn't trick or treat for coroners who had to deal with these bodies. And, and those family members who to this day, descendants, don't know whatever happened to a certain aunt or grandmother they had. So it's offensive. And what I would say is, I don't blame you for participating in this ignorance, but would you step back for a minute and look at this realistically and ask yourself, should you be doing this? The answer is no, you should not be doing this. Patricia is a writer of fiction, and she's just published her 25th thriller featuring heroine Kay Scarpetta, who first appeared in the book Postmortem. But Jack the Ripper represents an unusual foray into true crime for her. And Bad Women is, likewise, closer to true crime than any of my previous work. So I asked Patricia what responsibilities we have when it comes to representing real-life pain and suffering. I think you've got to be careful. I'm very cautious about true crime. The Ripper is as much as I want to get into that. And to be honest with you, one of the reasons I could and do it with abandonment is I didn't really feel that I was going to hurt people. If you have a mother who's been murdered in recent time, and then you do an in-depth thing on it, the people who have suffered through that suffered through it again. And while I'm not saying you shouldn't write about it, I'm saying for me, though, I would have a hard time doing that. I've talked to prisoners on death row before, and that's not my favorite thing to do. I don't really like spending time with the darker side of this. It was a British person who said this many years ago, and I've never forgotten it, of somebody who said, we mustn't celebrate what should be condemned. So when I decided to write Postmortem back in 1989, when I began that book, I said, and I was working in the morgue, I said, how do I do this? How do I tell a story and show what I know without it being prurient and maybe feeding the wrong thing? And I said, well, don't celebrate it. And the way you don't celebrate it is tell it completely from the forensic pathologist, the doctor's point of view, because her empathy is with the victims and her outrage is towards a piece of crap that did it. And that is my mathematical algorithm for what I do. And, and I would be the first to say that there are times when I feel like I've crossed that line. You think you're being so graphic because you should. And then in hindsight, you go, maybe I should have backed it down a little bit. In probably the last 10 years, I'm much less graphic about some things than I was earlier on because I just think it's too much. It strikes me that Patricia's books on Jack the Ripper are quite graphic in places, and her TV documentaries have shown horrific close-up images of the dead women. Does she think she's crossed a line here? No, I don't feel as too graphic because I'm only portraying to you the anatomical and forensic facts. And if I talk about the way the incisions were made in Catherine Eddow's body, I'm simply relaying to you, reconstructing what exactly was there and what was done. That's different from fictionalizing that the person's walking down the sidewalk and the guy comes up behind her. And then next thing you know, you're turning it into sort of violent pornography. And that I don't do. 
which is why for a brief period when I started writing Scarpetta novels from the third person point of view, um, where I had to show what the killer was doing and what the victim was doing, I had to get away from that because then I have to show those things and I just don't want to. I'd rather see it through Scarpetta's eyes and fix it after the fact. So that is a struggle because as Hippocrates basically said, do no harm. And I don't want to do harm if I can avoid it. I really enjoyed talking to Patricia. There's still plenty of things we disagree on, but her commitment to the victims is impossible to doubt. She's also right on one big thing. True crime can do harm, but it can also be incredibly valuable. The genre of true crime starts with Ripperology. It starts with Jack the Ripper. This is journalist Billy Jensen, whose work focuses on missing persons and unsolved cases. The worst thing to do is not tell a story. You know, if any of those stories can get us closer to the answers, if we keep on telling them, then let's keep telling them. I just wish that we told a lot more stories. Billy has a podcast series, The Murder Squad, Jensen and Holes, and he's developed his own concept of true crime. I think True Crime 2.0 is where people can get involved, whether it's just via social media, whether it's doing the investigations on their own. We're in a big crisis in America right now when it comes to our media because the internet decimated newspapers. Every one of these stories that we see on True Crime started with a newspaper article. So you're having less people out there covering these stories. It's going to be up to citizens to do it. You're not going to make any money doing it, but it's going to be up to citizens doing it reading police reports, digging into that, because the newspapers just don't have enough people to do it. Or the newspapers are completely gone. This kind of crowdsourced crime investigation demands care. Be nice and use your head. You know, don't be an asshole. There are important rules, says Billy. And they're very similar to the rules of journalism. Things like, don't name names publicly, don't give out people's addresses. But you can get involved and you can do a lot of good work. And uh, that's what we do on Murder Squad. And we've, we've helped solve a couple cases and also getting loud on cases. True crime can shine a light on cases that have been forgotten or overlooked. And citizen investigators can be a useful tool here. You know, we cover this case of uh, this woman who was murdered, Rebecca Gould. You know, there were probably a couple suspects. We got really loud because we have a very popular podcast. We did a two-parter. This is a murder from 20 years ago. They arrested somebody in between the first and second episodes. But does Billy ever worry that they can turn crime-solving into a kind of game, the sort of pastime I've criticized some ripperologists for pursuing? I don't care if it's in a game. If At the end of the day, if this guy is caught and this guy's in cuffs, the victim's family doesn't, doesn't care that there was somebody that was doing that and trying to solve the murder of their loved one instead of, you know, playing a video game. Author Gillian Lauren who interviewed serial killer Samuel Little and has told the stories of his victims, feels similarly about the power of true crime. I think there's a lot of criticism around true crime that maybe I don't feel subject to because I actually am a victim and a survivor. So I think don't turn away. Deal with it responsibly. Crime is as much of a piece of humanity as love. Robert Kennedy said, every culture gets the criminal they deserve. And I think, you know, was Samuel Little the criminal we deserved in a society that was dismissing women, dismissing the poor, dismissing the homeless? I mean, he's certainly a criminal that is going to hopefully 
if dealt with responsibly in a narrative way, shed a light on that, not capitalize on it or exploit it. True crime, then, can be a useful lens for understanding the lives of others and for looking at where, as a culture, we've gone wrong and must do better. But all too often, it spills over into exploitative entertainment and tabloid clickbait. When murder-obsessive Stephen Griffiths was arrested for the murders of Shelley Armitage, Susan Rushworth, and would-be nurse Suzanne Blamires, he perhaps yearned for the notoriety of the killers he'd studied. His choice of weapon and vile assault on his victims' corpses were awful enough, but he also hankered after a nickname to equal the Rippers. When asked to identify himself in court, rather than state his name, he called himself the Crossbow Cannibal, causing the victims' families to sob in the public gallery. Many newspapers were only too happy to keep using his self-styled moniker, and it was seen in headlines around the world. So yet again, our fascination with the viciousness and cruelty of a murderer threatens to overshadow and obscure the women he killed. There are already TV documentaries looking at his life and his motivations, and books listing everything from his taste in music to the depravity of his crimes. Well, this is going to be a doozy of a case. Yeah, this is um, a lot. There's also no shortage of podcast episodes with his chosen nickname in the title. The Cannibal Crossbow Killings, or the Crossbow Cannibal Killings. Whichever one feels right to you. Yeah, alliteration, you can do it either I hope way. neither of them feel right to you. But none, whatever. Of, none of this should <laughs> yeah, feel none right. of this should feel should right. As for Suzanne Blamires, well, she fades into the background. She's just another bad woman. Like Polly, her marriage soured. Like Annie, her comfortable life evaporated thanks to addiction. Like Kate, she drank. And like Elizabeth and Mary Jane, she fell back on sex work to make ends meet. When Suzanne's killer was sent to prison for life, her grieving mother issued a statement saying that she too was serving a life sentence. She concluded by asking the public not to dismiss or judge Suzanne and the other dead women. At the end of the day, nobody deserves this, she wrote. All these girls were human beings and people's daughters. In the season finale of Bad Women, we'll return to 1888 for one last time to look at the impact of the Whitechapel murders on two families. We'll hear how Annie Chapman's brother was brought to his knees by her death. And we'll learn the sad story of butcher Jacob Levy, whose mental health problems nearly ruined his family, but also saw him added to the list of men who were accused of being... Jack the Ripper.
Mad Women The Ripper Retold is brought to you by Pushkin Industries and me, Hallie Ribbenhold, and is based on my book, The Five. It was produced and co-written by Ryan Dilley and Alice Fines, with help from Pete Norton. Pascal Wise sound designed and mixed the show, and composed all the original music. You also heard the voice talents of Sol Boyer, Ben Crow, Sarah Bowes, Melanie Guttridge, Gemma Saunders, and Rufus Wright. The show also wouldn't have been possible without the work of Mia LaBelle, Jacob Weisberg, Jen Guerra, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Nicole Moreno, Letal Moulad, Eric Sandler, and Daniela Lucan. With special thanks to my agents, Sarah Ballard and Ellie Karen. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.